Kevin O'Hara has a new book, and this one, they're all deeply personal. There's no doubt they're all deeply personal, but this one has a different vibe uh, compared to some of the others. But um, Kevin, my God, it's great to see you. Oh, nice to see you again, John. When's the last time we <coughs> saw it? Well, I don't know. I guess the last time we've seen each other was was more recent, but the last time I had you on a broadcast program was a little a little while ago. Yeah, 2004, yep. <laughs> when the donkey came out. Yeah. When the last of the donkey pilgrims, right. um, which was amazing. That was your first real big book, right? Right. That took me 25 years to write. That's <laughs> on, it? <laughs> on, on and off effort, of course. But uh, yeah, it really did well, and it's still doing well, and it's into its 20th print run. Wow. And actually, might get a boost with this other book because I cross-reference that quite often in the book, my psychiatric book or my Jones book. It's interesting because uh, from what I understand, the sort of anecdote uh, in regard to the nursing philosophy and your approach to nursing, a little bit of donkeyism, if that's a way to I know. describe it, yeah, the donkey has, has, slides into that a little bit. Yeah, the donkey nurse. Well, it was a very strange thing. I had been a nurse for four or five years prior to my going to Ireland to walk the donkey around the coast. Uh, when I came back uh, to the workplace, we were having a rash of restraints and seclusions. Mm -hmm. It was uh, them versus us mentality, patients versus staff. And uh, there was no need for it in many ways. We were too quick off the trigger sort of to kind of keep people down and controlled and but during my donkey travels what i had learned was see my donkey had to be sheltered in a secure field every evening or she might wander off <laughs> against me maybe not in the end she wouldn't but in the early going she'd scamper especially when she was in season and she was looking for a jack for company mm. not a jackass like myself <laughs> right so I, oftentimes, well, not that frequently, but now and again, she'd have to be sheltered with these high-wired racehorses. Mm. And uh, and boy, they'd be quick. And uh, you'd worry about them. And they snip and nip and run around. And I thought, my donkey, Missy, was very humble and uh, gentle beast, right? She didn't have much fight in her. And I thought she'd be bitten by these characters, you know? But my, the farmers would say, no, believe me, she's all right. She makes for a good pasture buddy, and she has a way of calming down the rest of her horses, well, the rest of the horses. So sure enough, I go back 20, 30 minutes, and they'd all be cropping the grass peacefully together. Mm. So I said, gee whiz, how wonderful that is for her to have that. She's also a great guard of the herd. So, you know, she'd protect the herd, whether it be goats or sheep or horses three times her size. And when I came back to the floor with these uh, restraints and seclusions, I asked Eileen Myers, my boss, I said, Eileen, could I become the donkey nurse? <laughs> she wasn't <laughs> quite where I was going. I just came back after walking the donk, right? And, uh, and she asked what I mean. And I said, well, to be out there in milieu, you know, milieu, and uh, as a benevolent person, you know, humorous, not big on rules, more or less an ombudsman. You know, a nice go-between, you know, you know, not harsh on rules or anything, but near enough to be one of each, one of them and one of ours, right? And it worked remarkably well. In fact, a couple of years later, 
we got a very big award from the Department of Mental Health. We were the least restrictive unit in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. Mm. We went one full year with never needing to put our hands on a patient. Wow. Which is, you know, you just can't even figure that out, especially with the clientele we had, many of whom did not want to be there. You know, this was Jones 3. No, it wasn't. It was Jones 2. But when I did return after my walk around Ireland, um, there was great fanfare. I mean, I was liked well enough, right? And there was a confused, addled old fella, you know, patient, but he didn't know where I was, who I was. And he got irritable. He said, what's all the fuss about? What's all this fuss all about? And I went over to him and I said, I'm just returning here to Jones too after walking a donkey around the entire coastline of Ireland, (laughs) right? He looked at me with a tear in his eye and he said, don't worry, son. When I first came in here, I thought I was Teddy Roosevelt. (laughs) 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 Yeah. So he just said, oh, here's another Looney Tune, right? Here's another one. Fit right in. What room room are you in? (laughs) You want to be my roommate? (laughs) Yeah, so for many, many years, I was able to do that. And Eileen was great, a great boss. You were talking earlier about the old mayor, Jim Roberto. She sure. was fabulous. And, uh, and so was it my Eileen. And uh, no, we did really well together. And from that time on, things went very well. Then in 1988, Jones 3 opened, and it was a, a locked ward involuntarily so basically people who went there were often court ordered to go there so that was a different kettle of fish but we can we maintained what we had been doing on jones too a number of us came up to three and uh yeah it worked fairly well yeah, believe I, me we had a rough time so we had some some tough goes but overall it was much better and i always thank missy my donkey for just just who she was. I mean, it's crazy for her to be my mentor in many ways, but you learn from a humble little beast, you know, if you pay mm-hmm. attention. And I tell you, I did pay attention because she was the only pal I had for eight months, you know. So that <laughs> walking uh, around us you know. versus them mentality, yeah. you were uh, able to break through that. And I think, you know, a lot of that is being able to see. A person and yeah. you know you were the one who would go in and you had your tie on yeah. and they would say well you, yeah that better be a clip-on tie right you know right. because it's it's actually a physical danger to right. you to have an actual tie yeah. and it was a real tie uh but uh but you know to some extent you know that was probably at least that energy was recognized yeah. by those patients to some extent and you were really um that uh, that person who who saw them yeah well, thank you. And um, yeah, I was just kind of fun loving. And geez, where did you get your license? Walmart. These are the quips <laughs> I used to get. You know, what did you ever hear of a bearded nurse? You know, I get all this slagging. But of course, I didn't mind it. You know, plus you, you were the bearded nurse. Yeah. Yeah. You were also yeah. Nurse Light. Where, where did Nurse Light come nurse from? Nurse Light comes from my dear friend, Spencer Trova. Him and I worked together since 1974. We were the last two, and we retired together in 2010. Wow. Yeah. So we opened Jones 2 in 74, and we opened Jones 3 in 1988, and we both retired in 2010. He would became a deacon. No kidding. Yeah, a deacon at St. Mark's for a while, and then St. Charles. And myself, I, uh, I got to teach 
at Southern Vermont College nursing for a year or two, and then I hung up my cap, so to, <laughs> so to speak. You know, fortunately, men didn't wear caps. It was tough to be a male nurse back then when I first. That started. is interesting. What yeah. I mean to, to be the and and obviously you weren't the only one. You, know, no. you had Mr. Trova with yeah. you, uh, but uh, but looking at that. Um, I suppose it's more accepted today, you know, in the in the culture. But still, I mean, it is predominant women as yeah. nurses. So, what is that like? Because usually, you look at the dynamic, and it's like, okay, there's the nurse, and then there's the physician, right. and you know, there's a certain approach to that, and yeah. you know, the physician is like, you know, yeah. oh, here comes the physician, you know, yeah. he's <laughs> in the hierarchy. Well, but, exactly. uh, but but you know. But being uh, the male nurse, uh, especially in the 70s, um, what was that like? Well, first of all, I just got to tell you one quick anecdote. So yeah. I'm dating my wife, Belita. All right. She was a medical technology student from the Philippine Islands. And there was a tennis court behind St. Luke's Hospital where I worked and Belita worked. Both of us worked there. But we were dating at the time and we both liked to play tennis. So we were playing tennis and Two kids from the neighborhood, a boy and a girl, brother and sister, they came to watch and they had their rackets. So I said to him, listen, we're only going to be another 10 minutes. So just stick around and play right after us. They said, yeah. So the little girl said, are you are you um, are you studying to become a doctor? <laughs> she yells across the pavement there and uh, brother kind of gives her a ribbing and says, what do you think he's studying to be a nurse? <laughs> oh, but that was killing. I mean, that cut me in half, oh, especially yeah. since Melita was a med tech and, you know, she was having lunch with all these surgical residents, you know, and this type of thing, you know, with nice scrubs. And here I am with this ugly white frock, <laughs> you know, stained and everything with all the mundane tasks I had to do. But how I became a nurse was during my stint in Vietnam in 69 and 70, I had read the book, um, The Night They Burned a Mountain by Dr. Tom Dooley. And it really inspired me to become a nurse because Tom Dooley had a clinic in Laos in and Cambodia, but in Laos, a place called Moon Singh. And he started a clinic there. And I wrote to the foundation, the Dooley Foundation. I said, what are you in need of? And he said, right. they wrote back immediately. They said, they said, we're in desperate need for nurses. So there in Vietnam, Cameron Bay. Bingo. I said, that's what I'm going to be. I'm going to be a nurse. I'm going to join the Dooley Foundation. I'm going to come back here and work for a year or two or maybe longer in Laos. But as I was going through BCC, taking the prerequisite courses, sure enough, the war spilled over to Cambodia and Laos, and therefore the clinics had to be abandoned. And doc, Dr. Dooley died very young. He died at age 34. Mm. But he was the man who went to Notre Dame Catholic. He, uh, he was the one who basically inspired the Peace Corps. So with that in mind, that's when I really became, uh, you know, then I'm halfway through. I haven't started my training, but I have like nine courses taken care of already. My mother was a nurse, a psychiatric nurse, and she took care of very famous people in England during World War II. In fact, she took care of a lady, um, Lady Gibson, Lady Violet Gibson, who actually in 1926 tried to assassinate Benito Mussolini. No kidding. And my mom was her nurse. 
for a few years, along with other nurses, of course, but she was on the same ward huh. and she was a great woman. In fact, I have a story in the Eagle now, wait, on now, Saturday. Where, where was she? Where was this? Uh, uh, well, after she shot Mussolini, nicked him in the nose with a gunshot, the second shot jammed. Otherwise, history would have been changed totally. Hmm. But Mussolini said, oh, it's, he said, he said, it's a simple joke with a pistol shot. He saved her from an angry mob but rather have her imprisoned. They sent her, this is before the war, down 1926. They sent her to St. Andrews where she lived for the rest of her life until she died in 1966, I believe. But my mom took care of her and those stories that my mom would tell and also going to Wales to avoid the bombings in England and the Blitz that time, those stories always resonated with me you know, her nursing tales and her stories. And my brother Dermot became a nurse. So all of a sudden, in our little house, we have two male nurses. I mean, what's the chances? As my brother Dermot used to always joke, geez, Kevin, if we didn't become nurses, we'd end up being male nuns. <laughs> now, that's a very scary thought. You know, Male nurse is really bad. That's kind of oxymoronic anyways. And I wish they dropped the male in that, you know, eventually they'll just a nurse is a nurse. Yeah. You don't say female nurse. Of course. You know, you know, but it's just, it's just one of those little things. That yeah. I, guess, I mean, I guess the vestige would uh, continue because in, in healthcare, you know, you, some people request male nurses or female right. nurses and, yeah. and, you know, based on uh, whoever they're caring for. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> you don't need to say male nurse anymore. Come on. This is 2022, right? Yeah. Maybe I could change it. Maybe my book will do that. Um, yeah. But you're right. And there was probably one to 2% of nurses in general in 1970 were male or men. And many of them were from the uh, Christian orders, you know, Christian brothers and all these other things, monastic monks basically uh had nurses and then walter whitman was a nurse during the civil war for three years and that guy gave it a little more of a manly thrust you know to the profession <laughs> you know i mean you know not, nothing wrong with being a hairdresser either but you know what i mean you get caught into a little little box sure. you know sure so you had a you didn't have to fight it but you were kind of made fun of by my friends oh, what are you going to be a, a nurse <laughs> oh really o'hara you know that kind of thing you get some slagging of course you did. But now I think it's up to about nine, 10 percent. Yeah. And, and men have really done well, especially in the emergency room and the OR and the psychiatric wings, you know, where some brawny presence sometimes is helpful. Yeah. That doesn't include me. Right. <laughs> I do hope that you are enjoying the podcast. I just want to take a quick moment to let you know that this is a production of 180 Media. That's my full service communications and marketing agency. We do a full range of content development, graphic design, web development for WordPress or Wix or other web platforms, copywriting, video work. We'll help you develop your short and long-term marketing plans. And I can actually even coach you to nail that next presentation. Check out 180media.com and see also some of my past work and the agency's past work on my blog, johncroll.info. And now back to the podcast. You were also known as Kevlar. Yeah, Kevlar. Yeah. And so tell me about that. But then 
at one moment, um, one incident, you ceased to become Kevlar, right? Um, when you were body slammed and, right. and so forth. But but first, you were Kevlar before you weren't. Yeah, I was Kevlar for a long time, and the reason was I could get away with things that others couldn't. I remember once I uh, I left a patient down in the courtyard. It was locked, but I left him down there, right? And uh, Kathy Plake and her name was. She did something a real misdemeanor, and our boss questioned her. But meanwhile, he never really said much about me leaving a patient down below. <laughs> you know, they caught about fifteen minutes. Hey, where's Fred? You know, and then he went to get him. But Kathy was the one who said, "That's your name. That's your new name, Kevlar." Now Spencer Trova called me Nurse Light because um, I never had any formal training in intensive care units, coronary care units, the medical units. I mean, I basically went from St. Luke's as a general, uh, what do you call them, graduate nurse, right to the Jones too. So I never really had much training, you know, for doing things and like hanging IVs, you know, giving shots. I got fairly good at that in, in the end. But, you know, I wasn't a real medical nurse, whereas Spencer and a number of our colleagues had gone to other positions and they were they were very valuable on our floor. We didn't have too, not often did we have any medical concerns, but oftentimes it would sprout out. And I was helpless in Mayday situations. In fact, I say in the book that I didn't know the difference between a ping pong cat paddle and a cardiac paddle, right? <laughs> <laughs> That's how sad I was. So Spencer used to always call me nurse light. Kathy Plakin called me uh, Kevlar. Patients called me the bearded nurse and I called myself the donkey nurse. So that will give you a sense of what I was like on a psych unit, no less, where it all fit in very nicely. And especially, well, in a uh, world, in an industry where the, the, it's always been nurses eat their young. Right. Now, I don't know if you had a special dispensation as, you know, the man. Right. Maybe, maybe you didn't have quite the same uh, experience, but, right. but that's, that's a thing. Yeah. Well, I was lucky. Some nurses weren't very kind to some men, but I think a lot of it had to do with the men themselves. You're right. So it might've been a little boastful or, but, I had another little um, thing going for me. My father was working at St. Luke's Hospital for years. He drove the sisters of Providence around in a big Fleetwood Cadillac. Nice. Right. We were like the third <laughs> poorest family in our parish, and we drive around all summer long in this Fleetwood, <laughs> you know? We're always sort of out of touch. But my dad, you know, right from Ireland, wonderful brogue, wonderful accent, a great chat, a great chatter person. Uh, storyteller, and he would enamor himself to all the St. Luke's nursing students, of which there were maybe 50, 60 per class for years coming out of St. Luke's Hospital in their diploma program, and they all lived basically right there at Madonna Hall, and my dad knew every one of them. So when Kevin O'Hara came home from Vietnam and started nursing and then became an orderly, oh, you're you're James O'Hara's son. Welcome. That kind of thing. Mm. So I had a nice in, and then a few people would have known that my mom and my two aunts were, were nurses as well. So 
Yeah, looking back, and Dermot was great. My brother, and good looking and fun, and that great mop of brown hair, and you know, so they liked him yeah. a little more than the little Weasley guy you got on camera here. You know, <laughs> <laughs> Weasley looking. So, but you, but hey, you were the lucky Irish lad. That's right. Right. right? So, you know, I was always lucky, and I got lucky there. I got lucky in my profession. I really nursed for well over actually thirty years. They had several breaks. You know, I'd break for a year, I'd break for six months, but that was very important. And I think nurses should be given sabbaticals just like teachers. I mean, you can get burnt out. What I like about your book um, is, and, and I'm sure it's not the only book that does this, but obviously, but in a, in a day and age when nursing is so difficult, um, the burnout is the the percentage of of nurses that right. just simply quit during yeah. the pandemic oh, exactly. uh, or or thereafter um it's a tough tough profession and and med techs too and physicians mm -hmm. and, you know, mm -hmm. and and aids uh yeah, for sure right but to be able to tell these stories um because there's hipaa and yeah. really it's it's kind of a, a strange thing for a, a nurse and I'm, I'm sure people share things with loved ones and near and dear but at the end of the day you know this is work that's done and you can't really talk about it not fully right. uh, in a lot of ways and right. so that, that's one thing i really like about this is that it really delves into the details right names are changed of course uh you know of, of patients um some names are changed of uh of uh, your co-workers now right. but not not all of them right um you know but uh to, to me it's it's kind of, i'm sure it can be kind of cathartic to uh to some people in this profession uh i think so and i was fortunate too because my span of years were basically 50 years I mean, I started at St. Luke's as an orderly in 1971, and many of the stories in Ins and Outs of a Lock Ward are my orderly tales, mm. you know, and then it's been 12 years since my retirement. So I've had a span of 50 years to tell these stories. So it's easy for me to avoid any concerns regarding HIPAA. Um, patients would probably not know who they are. The big thing is many patients are going to be upset with me because they all wanted to be mentioned in the book by their name. And I told them I couldn't do it. I can't do it. Please, Henry, I cannot do it. Yeah, but don't you remember the time I, I uh, disappeared right in front of you? No, but I still can't do it. You know, and I used to get that all the time. I still do. And so, but I think I did a fair job. And it's nice to have written. I think it's a different book entirely than most nursing books. Most tend to be like clinical or journals. And this is tongue in cheek with foxhole humor and the camaraderie that I had with both patients and staff. And back in my day, in the 70s, 80s, 90s, we could take patients out. You know, we we're always taking them out to the ball games at Wakona Park, to the parades and picnics. And that's entirely different now because the the insurance companies say if you can allow these folks to go out they don't need to be in a locked set they could it. be in a step down or a daycare or something uh, like this but it was very important to take patients out especially a day or two before discharge um because they needed to test the waters in a safe environment like jones three in the courtyard they felt okay for one quick example we had a, a patient that i was 
took her out. She was to be discharged the next day. And a fella just walked by, a pedestrian just walked by, and he had a bum sweatshirt. Do you remember the name brand, bum, B-U-M? Yeah. Mm-hmm. She thought that he wore that purposefully because he knew that she hadn't a job and he was calling her a bum. Yeah. You know, and she basically broke down. I mean, so a very concrete thought and uh, it wouldn't have been recognized. And then, you know, she stayed a little longer because she needed to and she actually wanted to because she wasn't ready to step back out. Yeah. Yeah. You really need that because that's ultimately we have to find a way to live in this you know world right. um, which can be not perfect yeah <laughs> for sure you know i didn't mention that in my book uh, that i did have a last chapter about returning to work after i got hurt mm-hmm. and uh but i wanted to uh, i wanted to leave it on a good note because a lot of it was still good you know it was shortly thereafter that there was a ban on smoking you know, we'd allow patients for to six cigarettes a day in the courtyard spread throughout the day, but we give them the correct gum and everything else that they need. And we tried to wean them off smokes, but that was wrong too. I mean, when you have these kinds of issues, right? I really is smoking cessation the, <laughs> the most important priority. Well, exactly. Let, let them have a smoke. Uh, exactly. <laughs> and I was wanted a few to fight it, despite the fact that it's totally against one's health. I mean, that's another reason why it was called nurse light, right? I used to buy community smokes. I was going to say, you were one of those nurses that uh, stopped at O'Connell's convenience plus or wherever, uh, and, and picked up some, uh, some cigarettes for the, and, and, you know, I justify that by, you know, the medicines that we gave these folks, you know, to make them drool and twitch for years, you know, and cigarettes certainly are not harmless, but, but boy, you could turn plus a broad, a peace and a contentment to patients. And they look forward to that cigarette in the courtyard at 1 p.m. or 6 p.m. You know, it was wrong to, there was no more joy in Mudville when that happened, to be honest with you. Hmm. Uh, because there was so much fun and camaraderie. I mean, you have people that were strangers from different opposite poles, but she with, with the smoke, I never smoked, right? people with a smoke in their hand, they'd be chatty and they'd be more peaceful. And uh, well, well, it's gone. And maybe it's good that it's gone too, because now the price of cigarettes, they couldn't afford them anyways. Hmm. So all in all, it was a good thing. But during my time, it was, oh my God, they're here. you're suicidal. You're going into the emergency room to seek help. They find out that you can't smoke when you smoke a pack a day. You know, you're going to make a U-turn out the ER and you could do some harm to yourself. That was my bite. That was my bark. But I failed. You know, I lost, I think, probably 42 to two <laughs> in the vote. <laughs> <laughs> Certainly a minority on that one. But doesn't hey, mean it's you're wrong. Doesn't no, mean it doesn't wrong. mean uh, not right, uh, but I wasn't yeah. wrong. Uh, I, I, you know, I looked at that and, you know, you did mention something uh, about, uh, the number of medications that mm-hmm. people are given and the dramatic impact. But it seems to me that uh, we are much more quick to medicate uh, in uh, the society and healthcare than we are to try to do the uh the harder way, which right. is uh, sort of working through behaviors mm-hmm. um, by changing behavior, which is a right. really, really hard thing to do. It's a lot easier to give someone a pill, right. medicate them, you know, maybe get them to become more calm, mm-hmm. so forth. 
but that's that's never been a real solution. And I guess you know, <laughs> not to get too deep into the American healthcare system, but uh, if our what we're trying to do is get people to become discharged sooner in a lot right. of ways, and that's happening also. Right. Man, um, how are we really helping people ultimately get back into society mm-hmm. the way that they need to? Yeah, it's tough. Yeah, it's very tough. We've had, uh, although fair play medications have really helped mm-hmm. many, many folks. In fact, Northampton State probably would still be open if it wasn't for Haldol and Thorazine, which were the early, early neuroleptics, mm-hmm. antipsychotics. Um, but they do get better to medicines, you know. But, you know, you just don't feel I, no patient wants to take your beds. I can tell you that right now. And I dished out a lot of medicines over my years, you know, yeah. but you know, you look back on it and you question things, but hey, you do what you can, right. When you could. Yeah. How did you meet Belita? I met Belita in the hospital. I know that. (laughs) Do you remember the first time you saw her? Oh, yeah. She had a yellow ribbon in her hair. There were about 12 or 13 Filipina girls working in the lab. It was a big deal. Back in the early 70s, interns and residents came from all over the world, right? And so did med technologists. And many of them were from the Philippines. One or two would come and they'd tell these these others. And so Alita's two sisters came before her. And that's how Belita eventually came to Pittsfield. And her one of her sisters, Cheryl, was still there. Well, she was the prettiest of the lot, right? I wasn't dating anybody. And she had a yellow ribbon in her hair. And I said, I'm going to ask that that woman there to marry me. And, of course, the, or- the orderlies around me, what a gag, right? <laughs> what a bunch. I love them all. In fact, I'll see a couple of them, I hope, on Sunday. Well, they said, "Oh, Harry, you're shopping at you're shopping at uh, you're shopping at Macy's when you should be shopping at Zares." <laughs> All right, so how's that for Zares. yeah, <laughs> you know? And but and anyways, asked her out. We had uh, you know we got together pretty well, and um, there was martial law in her country. Otherwise, Belita and her sister would never have came have come to America. Hmm. Uh, it was Ferdinand Marcus martial law. Belita's father was an outspoken critic against him, writing letters to the editor and things like that, which was very chancy. And to safeguard his daughters, that's when when Lynn, the oldest of the three, uh, saw a little clipping in in a medical journal come to the Berkshires, right? And she just liked the whole idea of there was a mountain scene, right? And so that's where Cheryl, I mean, that is unbelievable. So there was literally an advertisement for the Berkshires in the medical journal in the Philippines, in the Philippine islands. And, uh, and that's how she decided to, to come here specifically. I mean, it could have been (laughs) with many others. (laughs) So whoever came up with that ad. Yeah. Yeah. You you gotta, (laughs) yeah. Well, you brought me my bride, you know, (laughs) send a gift basket. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So that was, it was nice. And I had just come back basically from Vietnam. So I was a little more accustomed to Asian culture and things or more attracted, right? Whereas if I hadn't been in Vietnam and spent a number of days in Saigon and got to know many people, um, 
then I probably wouldn't have had the nerve to have asked her out because mm -hmm. of our cultural differences. Yeah. But she was Catholic. I was Catholic. And, you know, sure, she loved my dad. My dad loved her and everything. Well, I just want to tell you when I used to, she used to be an early bird. She used to have to draw blood early in the mornings and the wards. And I was the night orderly at the time. This is 6 a.m., right? And one time I saw her, and we're just not dating yet. I haven't asked her out yet. So I see her coming down the hallway with her little basket to draw blood in one room or the other. And at this one particular point, I had a bedpan in my hand, but it was at least it was empty, right? So I just had time to drape it over my forearm like this and carry it like a servant. And I walked by with my nose in the air. Well, of course, she got a charge out of it. And uh, so that was breaking the ice and always opening the door for her at every single opportunity I had, right? So I endeared myself to her. Yeah. And, uh, and uh, you know, you kind of wonder if it's fair or not. I mean, she's been away from home for a long time. And sadly, these last two years, she hasn't been back to the Philippines. But um, have you but, gone? You've gone back with her? Oh, yes. Yeah. We had been going every five years. But her sisters eventually uh, settled, married, and settled in San Diego. So there's where we go. So it's that go between again. Yeah. So yeah. we go well, to, it's not bad. No, it's not too bad at all. But she misses, you know, she misses particular fruit, you know, and things that you wouldn't think of, you know, fruit, the ocean, people, mm -hmm. even though for me, it's very hot and humid there. But for her, her it's very cold here, <laughs> especially in the winters that are forever lasting, you know. And they seem to get longer. Yeah, yeah we have two good sons, so you know, no regrets. You know, move forward. And we're both in pretty good health, so we're yeah. both in our. And plus, you can hold court at Patrick's. That's right. Uh, and, yeah, I go that's... to the Patrick's, and we go to the Heritage House now in Lenox too. Which is my brother and sister both live in Lenox. Mm. My younger brother and sister. So I kind of go back and forth. And now that John McNinch owns Patrick's Pub, Shana Powell was great. She was previous owner. And Micah, but um, but I do like this John McDinch. I mean, oh, I liked sure him. Is a good guy. Uh, yeah, I liked him very much when he, when he ran the Heritage and he sold out, of course. And now he's running Patrick's. And doesn't it doesn't hurt that uh, you know his last name is McMinch? No, no, it does. Of course not. No, <laughs> surely doesn't. Good family, really yeah. good family, good people. Yeah, uh, good people. I knew his dad. Uh, he was a he was a great man uh, as well. So uh, good stock there. choosing to do this and it's a labor of love all these books are um but it is a lot different your past books kind of uh, maybe more whimsical or uh you know certainly a lot of joy mm -hmm. uh, a lot of emotion mm -hmm. um you know this one a little different a little different edge to it yeah well it needed to be to be truthful sure. of course but fortunately i put in great splashes of humor or lightheartedness in it i hope I yeah. think, yeah, because people say that a few people who have read it say they enjoy the humor. So it's a real nice balance and you really need that because some are cotton. I mean, so as I say, uh, some patients will wring your heart like a sponge. You know, I mean, it's real sad. I mean, things just don't go their way, you know, despite it's sometimes for no fault of their own. You know, it's just they just got the unlucky card, you know, right through unlucky, you know. And that's the poor folks that you see sometimes tramping the streets. 
And I think the greatest concern or pain for people that are mentally ill is loneliness. Hmm. They just can't seem often, not all, can't seem to fit in. I remember I, there was one kid, a good looking guy and, you know, ill. And I'd say, listen, let's go to La Casina. That was the place. To, let's go to La Casina and I'll meet you there. And, um, and we'd go, but he just couldn't mix. And you just felt bad for him. You'd say something a little off the wall to somebody, you know, not your common hello and this and that. And you could see people just kind of shying away or backing off. Hmm. And it wasn't fair for me to even have put him in that place. Hmm. Although I wanted to see if he could. And we've had many patients and stuff and sure. do really well. Yeah, because uh, if they because if they do hmm. and it works, yeah. then all of a sudden there's this new connection and right. a new form of confidence that, right. that oh, would very, be there. Yeah, it's very important. Yeah. I used to take a few patients golfing as well and stuff. And that worked out much better because it was just a few people. But you get in a crowd with music and drink and all, it just wasn't a bad mix. And actually, I was told not to do it by our psychiatrist. Yeah, yeah. Well, But I wanted to try it. You and it what? didn't work trying to assimilate them into a, a situation it was, it was worth a shot it was worth, it was a, worth shot. a shot but the, you know, you, it sounds it sounds to me like you didn't always go by the book no well <laughs> to, that's, to, that's, to state it no that's why obviously that's why i'm thinking that this won't be a book for uh for nursing schools <laughs> you know it won't be a reference book i think it's the exact opposite you mean bcc is not going to give it uh, to the uh, to the curriculum coordinator there well gee whiz they might you know just what? for saying this they is really should yeah they really should they because should. you know is... because there's an empathy standpoint and that's another thing in healthcare like for a long time and i think maybe this has eased up or changed a little bit in recent years but mm. for so long there's been this mentality where uh, you need to have this sort of lack of empathy. You know, right. the physician uh, speaks with the family and gives them the bad news right. and they can't show emotion or right. empathy, whether it's because of liability yeah. or something along those lines. Yeah. But why? Yeah, you I know. know. How, why would that be the case? Yeah, rather stoic oftentimes yeah. for no known reason. But I, I've seen some very positive things in my years. I mean, when I first started as an orderly and then as a as an RN, these physicians at the time they were real tough. They mm. were hard. I mean, I felt like a enlisted man with an officer, or I felt like a caddy with a golfer who was in a bad mood. You know, they were very demanding, <laughs> right? And they'd have you do things that they could have done. But now, nurses and doctors have really gelled as colleagues. Yeah. Now, after many, many years, the new crop of doctors in the last 20, 30 years are a different breed entirely yeah. than the ones that went in the 60s and 70s. Yeah, that's good to hear. That's very that's good. good to hear. Yeah, we have uh, Dr. DeMarco, Bill DeMarco. Hmm, he's sure. the chief hospitalist there at BMC now. And he's got a, a cavalcade of wonderful people around him, physicians. And they're really... They, they're really bedwise, you know, I mean, they're good. They're good in the room. They're good with families and patients and with nurses. Yeah. And you know? so a lot of it's great. But then again, it, there's always room for improvement, you know, and it is a business. And when business gets in a way, like at St. Luke's and Pittsfield General, when I first started, 
we always or they always hired handicapped people all right that i don't see as much of that anymore they used to have handicapped people working in the laundry department you know or you know or collecting things tidying up or housekeeping you know some jobs but you don't see that as much now it's hey we need people that's a hundred percent you know we got to get the work done this efficiency kind of and yeah productivity you know, you know. and st luke's st luke's had a real nice way about it and but it was the nuns too they had a they were a whole different breed the nuns you know they were yeah. really really good yeah. you know yeah i think i you know i've seen that in healthcare also i you know there's a nursing facility here in the Berkshire is called Mount Carmel care and right. it used to be under the sisters of Providence. Right. And now it's under the Carmelite, but in, right. in both cases, yeah. uh, the sisters and it is a different yeah. mentality. It's also yeah. just a different financial exactly. setup. That's and, the thing. And that's a big, yeah. you, you, yeah. you know, you raise a great point yeah. because if it's set up in a way where it's not made to maximize right. profit, right. Um, then, then it is a different situation. And that's how healthcare should be. I mean, the, Healthcare should not be a profit center. <laughs> no, not at all. Uh, not at all. No. Not at all. Now you mentioned caddying. Now were you a caddy oh, at yeah. Pontusic Country Club? No, back in the day. Of course not. I was a caddy at the Country Club of Pittsfield. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't just by that. chance, just by chance. My brother's caddy. Then I went after them to caddy. Okay. That was okay. that was because my, my dad uh, was at Pontusic, right? And you know, yeah. you know, Walt Kubica, right. and, you know, those guys. Yeah, know wonderful, yeah, amazing golfers. Yeah, uh, I was a I was a member there for years. Yeah. Um, afterwards, but my caddying days were were really good, and that's one thing that got me in a little bit in the soup when I first started as an orderly because the boss Ed Crosby. We turned out to be wonderful friends. He was a retired police officer and he wasn't not in good health, but he did not like me. He did not like the length of my hair after I came <laughs> home from Vietnam. He didn't think I had the mustard to, to cut, you know, cut the mustard and, and to do the job, called me up on a couple of things in the early going, but he did not like the fact that I knew all the doctors because I caddied for them and they liked me and I liked them. So here I am chatting with Dr. Harrington. So, you know, orderlies back then weren't chatting in the doctor's lounge, right? With some of these doctors that I had caddied for, Dr. Blaze and a few others, you know, so that kind of rubbed him wrong that it was a little too uppity for my position. Right. Yeah. So he almost he almost gave me the axe, but there's two funny stories that I will not go into because we'll never leave this house tonight. <laughs> but they're in the book. But I was really saved by a couple of events that happened on the second to the last day of my two week um, period. You know. Uh, so You'll either way, read about it in the book. Yeah. Oh, it's fun. <laughs> well, I'll tell you real quick. We had one fellow. Who, <laughs> This is we had one fella who um who always felt he was constipated. He was a big heavy set guy and he'd call and we'd have to go up to his room and we'd have to roll him over, put the bedpan, it was a metal bedpan at the time over, roll him back, draw the curtains, wait outside. He'd call you in a couple of minutes, he'd say, Did I go, Joel? Right? Roll down a curtain, pull them off. No, you did not go. But you've gone twice already today, right? And we say, but nothing, nothing would would do. So on the second to my last day of my probation, 
Um, we put them on, and then John Quill, who I was with, was summoned elsewhere. So I'm waiting for this hopeful evacuation. And um, I mean, there's a dietary cart there because it was lunch. There was a baked potato right there on one of the plates, one big. So when he said, did I go, Joe, when I pushed him over, I slipped the baked potato into the <laughs> bedpan, boiled it over. I said, did you ever rumble, 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 rumble. And then he said, that's the <laughs> nagging log I've been waiting on. And, uh, and, and Ed Crosby, I thought I'd get canned for it, but Ed Crosby thought it was a brilliant placebo. <laughs> yes, right? That was brilliant. <laughs> yeah. And We're going to promote you. <laughs> yeah, there I was. So I got through my two week probation and uh, never looked back, <laughs> but that was, uh, that was just uncanny that that would have happened. And then what was worse uh, here I am on my last day, last rotation as a nurse, all right, student nurse, all right, BCC. Tough. There were 12 guys in our course, which was fabulous, right? Yeah. Three of them got cut the first semester, but there were nine of us left. They always tried to whittle it down to 40. You start at 60 students, end up with 40. BCC is a proud institution, much so back then. Are you kidding? They had 100% passing rates for years on the nursing boards and our scores were higher than many diploma and baccalaureate programs. Mm. All right. Mm. So they went, you had to really be fairly sharp to get in. So 60 would become 40. We were at 41. The last semester, <laughs> two weeks left. This is no lie of a story. No lie of a story. We had one, one nursing instructor that I called the Colonel and she was a Colonel retired Colonel in the army. Um, and, uh, I dreaded her. She had flunked more students than all the others combined, the other six combined. Right. And I had her for the very last rotation and she called me up on a nursing care plan because I really, <laughs> you're, you're in the crosshairs, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. Believe me. Oh, don't worry. We'll get it down to 40. I just know who I'm going to get. Right. So she said, I didn't quite understand why we do what we do as a nurse. Right. So it's a nursing care plan. I forgot the titles, you know, this and that. So anyways, I had two of my best students put one together for me on this patient that I had my last patient. So anyway, she took it from my hand, snapped it from my hand at nine in the morning. And she said, I'll be back at two with my answer. All right. Boy, are you kidding? So I'm, I'm with uh, an elderly confused man, septicemia, nothing severe up on isolation unit and it was coming on two o'clock and it's also time to take vitals. So I put the blood pressure cuff, you know, on his arm and thermometer and pitcher of water and made sure he was looking as good as he could comfortably in bed. And, uh, and as I was pulling the stethoscope after taking this blood pressure, she's at the door. All right. So she summons me over and She's looking around the room, looking for one, <laughs> one thing to dismiss me. And John, no word a lie. In my nervousness, I had plucked a rectal thermometer into his mouth rather than an oral. All right. So you have a red tipped rectal <laughs> thermometer in this guy's gob. All right. When I should have had a blue tip. 
She never saw it. <laughs> she never saw it. I was just somebody, about, yeah. Somebody was looking out for it. Yeah. She was just about, I was just about to blow the whistle on myself because maybe that would have been less of a crime rather right, than her telling right, me. Right. But I didn't. She turned around and she said, Kevin, your nursing care plan was excellent. I'll see you on graduation day. And she walked down. I tell you, in a flash, I, I had that. Put the blue one in. And now, a couple of years after that, I was on the staff. At, uh, I was an adjunct professor at BCC for two years during a, a one somebody had to leave, a maternity leave. Oh, I'd loved a job. You know, it was brilliant. And um, so we were coming back from a conference in Northampton, me and the colonel and a couple of the other nurses staff there. And I told her the story, right? <laughs> she said, Kevin, that, that never happened. And I said, it did happen. <laughs> and she said, well, if it did, I'm glad it did. So that was it. And we were great friends, great friends. That, and Ed Crosby and I became wonderful friends. In fact, he was the caterer for our wedding, Belita and I, when we had 300 people in attendance at my aunt's house in Lenox. And of course, you may know that both Belita and I were normal Rockwell models, thanks to Belita. No that, kidding. That's in the book, too. Yeah. writing when, when did writing start for you i think it started when i was 20 when i was in vietnam my yeah. mom was anxious nervous had a case of the nerves and uh i'd write two three times a week and there was very little to write about and what you couldn't write about a few things happened but you wouldn't write about those um but i'd write about my hooch mates the people in the bunkhouse i was a firefighter crash rescue firefighter that was i so i had many characters and my parents got a charge out of my stupid little letters, all right? And I knew they came. And back then, I mean, today, now, when you're in Afghanistan or Iraq, I mean, people are doing FaceTime. Are you course, kidding me? Yeah, yeah. Are you kidding me? Yeah. I was able to call home once my entire year in Vietnam, and it was a Mars station, you know, shortwave, once. So those letters were very important. Mm. And, uh, and, and, and so there's a spark in you, um, maybe in beginning to write those uh, yeah. and, you know, and, and putting that together. And what, I mean, what, what did you love about it? I liked writing about people and trying to be a little clever with a few words. All right. That's about it. Making somebody laugh, get a cheap, a cheap chuckle, you know, out of somebody <laughs> else's uh, expense. Right. <laughs> no. And that's why I like this book because um, you can really color code a patient. I mean, you can really dress up a patient too. You know, because they are some of them quite flamboyant, and there's a lot to write about. A little character. I mean, just anybody. There's a there's a wealth to pick on, and uh, not so much pick on, but to discover and to show. You know, so it's a nice mix. I just hope I didn't go over the top with some of this trench humor, but that's what you know. <laughs> well, but that's what I guess you'll find <laughs> out. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I don't know. I I admire NAMI National Alliance of the Mentally Ill and all the great work they do, but people have told me, Kevin, it's a wonderful balance. Balance, and without one, there wouldn't be the other side. You know. So well, we'll soon find out. My intention wasn't to do that, but my intention was to show really what a floor was like on a psych unit, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I and, mean, and, and a hospital and, like here and a wonderful hospital. Yeah. And we were, I mean, 
I can't say enough about BMC. And I think it's a tribute to the hospital when you look at it and the people have read it. I mean, no, the hospital was, you know, first class hmm. when I was there. And I think in a way, especially for uh, local readers, um, it, it may demystify yeah. Jones to some extent because there is this feeling of of you know mystery or right. the vaunted right. uh jones ward or however it may be described and you know of course it's jones two and three right. and, and and so forth but uh, but people know when you say jones mm-hmm. at bmc uh what they're talking about so maybe this uh opens doors a little bit and opens people's eyes i hope so people just know that everybody every day struggles everybody has them everybody's human you know and Get on with it the best you can. And I love the fact how patients can persevere through so much, you know, terrible stuff, Mm. you know, especially voices, you know, some sorts of hallucinations. I mean, over all my years, people that are badgered by voices, they're not kind voices. They're not, hey, Joe, you look good today on the mirror, you know, it's never like that. Hey, look at you, you fool you know i don't know why that is why the voice is always antagonizing you know yeah yeah Mm. yeah strange what a career yeah what a career so but there i am years later (laughs) (laughs) whack (laughs) nut myself uh, oh boy so there you have it you ever go back to the old neighborhood Oh, Wilson Street? Yeah. Very much. I take my walks there. Do you? Yeah. In fact, I found a quarter there not too long ago, and I imagine what it would be like if I had found a quarter when I was a kid and how I'd run to disco store and all that I'd buy with 25 cents. You know, it was a lot of money back in the 60s. Yeah. 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 yeah and Wilson Park. That's another thing. And I like this Jim McGrath, you know, who's currently sure. trying to bring the parks back. Wilson Park was, I tell you what, it was our six flags. And basically all it was was swing sets. You know, you look at it now and it's like a postage stamp of greenery compared to us. It was it was everything. We get up in the morning and we scoot down and then you had these college students who were there. I forgot the term that they used for them, but they were always there to help you out and set up projects or um, hobbies. You know, you had the great uh, parades with the floats and there was the queen and the king. And in fact, I came in second in a freckle contest once, <laughs> you know, I mean, and Johnny Riley beat me out, you know, and it killed me, you know, but he really beat me out because uh, he had more freckles than I did. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? Like when you're a kid, something that now we see today, it's just kind of maybe a like just a little tiny park with right. some little swing sets. And yeah. basically that's it. When you're a kid, mm. it's larger than life. Oh, it's fabulous. Fabulous. We used to have the night movies, you know, and the big spools, you know, and, and then we had softball teams and there were, I think 20 parks in the city. You know, we go from Deming to Clapp, you know, to Highland, you know, every neighborhood had a park and they were well-maintained and kids were good, you know, oh, now and again, you'd have a punk of course, you know, but rarely, you know, cause they just wouldn't fit in. 
Mm. No, it was a time, and then the footbridge, which means a lot to me, and who's a you know the, over the who's a tonic near right. Wilson Street, right? That goes from Wakona Street yeah, up to Lennox Ave. To Lennox yeah, Ave. it was a yeah. shortcut into going to school at St. Charles, mm-hmm. where I went to school from Wilson Street to St. Charles. It was saved about five seven minutes, but my mother forbade us to cross it because she was worried about water. And I think there was a bit of a droll there underneath for a while. Some guy who was a little chancy, I think, mm. but I had never seen him or met him. But now it's in so disarray. It's condemned. It's fallen apart. Mm. The dam. So, and that whole little river there that ran below Wilson Street. Oh, so much trash. It's unbelievable. I, actually, I'd be ashamed if I was running this city to see it in the state that it's currently in. Mm. I mean, for things that could easily be improved and be, you know, beautified, beautified, yeah. like cleaning up, you yeah. know, cleaning up. Yeah. There's yeah, we none. Get these, the, the, you know, cleanups like in the West side and some yeah. areas, I think, you know, uh, the Wilson street area, that'd be nice. Uh, well, to do a little. you look down with Kona street there, where uh, that area is from, from Wilson street to the footbridge. You've never seen anything like it. Mm. The trash actually from Mohawk street, a little near near plane uh, at uh, Ronnie Cycle. Yeah. Down to the footbridge. Yeah. Yeah. We got to do better. Well, we that's it. I mean, but, you know, you remember, and here it is now. That was 60 years ago. I'm talking. Now I would get an old crank. I'm becoming a Mr. Wilson. You know, I never thought I hate parking dogs that are left out. I hate lawnmowers that roar. I hate leaf blowers more than anything on the planet. You know, I don't understand them. You know, I just get a rake, you know. <laughs> so I'm turning into a curmudgeon here as I go older. You know, that's okay. You've earned it. <laughs> yeah, right, right. I can be a crank. You know? Nobody likes a crank. You know? uh, but it, it was quite a time to grow up though i yeah. mean I, yeah i i look at that and you hear stories and yeah, you know, even when you look uh back into the deeper history you know it never was the way we yeah. sort of romanticize right. it but that generation actually did really have it well your generation yeah. Yeah. um during that time in so many ways it was like a kind of a a magical time yeah. um, in in the city, but right. especially for that you know neighborhood. I mean, right. you know, <laughs> like my my dad grew up with you and yeah. uh, my uncle Mel yeah, right. and the and the rest and and you know they like just like everybody they go out and yeah. nobody no, you know there's no parental supervision. No, right? you didn't care. Nobody cared. Nobody cared. Yeah. And it just uh, yeah. and, and in a good way, you know, because yeah. like it's not. I suppose parents did care, but it was just the culture that it was like, you just went out and see you later. See you later. Yeah. And meanwhile, all the dogs ran free. I used to love to (laughs) see a herd of dogs, like 10 or 12 of them all moseying around together. (laughs) You know, it'll never happen again. The poor things, they bark for one another and they want to sniff each other, right? And they can't, you know, they're all isolated, you know, their own little pocket. That's why a nice dog park would be nice too. Yeah. 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 So it's, uh, it's really cool, but, but uh, now Sunday, um, and again, you know, just because we know that this this podcast is going to live on forever, but this is uh, we're in uh, late April, uh, going into May of 2022, and, and you are going to have an event uh, coming up uh, for the book. So uh, tell me about that a little bit. Well, it's going to be at Patrick's Pub, where the first two took place. And, uh, well, you never know. But you're hoping for a crowd. COVID will put probably a damper on it, you know, although it's loosening up. But some people are still hesitant of being a good crowd. We're expecting a crowd. 
have a number of books. We have a wonderful band called the Housatonic Philharmonic with special guests, nice. Tommy Powers uh, on the mandolin and Andy Gordon and Paul Rice and Tim. And that's going to be nice. And John McNinch is going to be the host opening up on Sunday just for us. You know, it's very kind of him. And uh, who knows? I won't read, of course. It would be too much bedlam there that day to read, but I'll certainly thank everybody for coming and I'll have books and gladly sign books and and just hope that uh, everybody has a good time. But I do feel that many people will see many people they haven't seen for a very long time and not just COVID, mm. but in my circles over the years, I've been really fortunate for three things. Berkshire, Berkshire Community College, right? That was a kick. Boy, if I didn't have that, I'd never get through nursing school. With my grades, high school grades, nobody would even have looked at me. So I got there, and then I got to UMass on the GI Bill. That was fabulous. Berkshire Medical Center, that gave me basically 40 years. Or I say 30 because I broke up. About 40 years of my life's work in a place where I could actually walk to work every morning, which is great. And then the Berkshire Eagle which gave me the outlet to write these stories to begin with. So I call them the three B's. And because of those three B's, I know a lot of people, you know, over the years. And I've kind of tried to endear myself in my stories. You can put the nicest thing about writing is you can put your best foot forward. You know, the best that you are, you put on paper, the worst that you are, Nobody ever sees it, right? Yeah, the trash bag. <laughs> yeah. So there you go. So people have liked my stories over there, like my Christmas tales and my St. Patrick's stories. And I meet a lot of people that I don't know who say that to me. So I think we'll have a fairly good crowd. But this has been nurtured for 40 years, this crowd. And I'm so delighted to stay in Pittsfield. My brothers, a few of them have moved away. They're in Boston and stuff. But it's so nice to meet people and your old friends and classmates. You bump into them in Boston. They're all strangers until you kind of make new friends. You know, when a horn beeps, when I'm taking my morning walks, I know it's probably somebody I know. When a horn beeps in Boston, they're telling you to get out of the way. <laughs> right? So there's a great difference. And I'm delighted to have just stayed put. St. Parish, St. Charles, still hear the church bells that my father rang as a janitor there before he became a chauffeur for the nuns. So it all winds down very nicely to a nice tight ball. That's beautiful. Yeah, that's beautiful. Well, Kevin O'Hara, it's a great pleasure seeing you again. Um, I think it's been a while since uh, I, I had seen you, you know, uh, down the road, maybe before COVID, but, right. uh, but I, I bumped into you and of course uh, saw that the book was out and uh, and I, I wish you the very best on it. I know it's going to be a great success on Sunday. I can tell you that. I'm sure there's going to be a line out the door yeah. uh, like it was uh, a decade ago for yeah. uh, for the last book. I, I bet that's going to happen. And uh, and so I wish you and Belita the very best and and the best to your family. I just uh, It's just a pleasure seeing you again. Well, thank you too, John. You've done an excellent job over the years yourself. So you're pretty stellar in your own way. So in fairness so here it was back in 2004 we were between microphones and here we are once again love it yeah so thank one you one of my favorite places yeah so. <laughs> the mic yeah well thank you and thank everybody love it love it thank you thank you for listening if you like what you hear please subscribe 
to the John Crow podcast on your platform of choice. Maybe it's Apple Podcasts or Spotify, whatever works for you. Also, I would like to hear from you on the people and the stories that you'd like to hear more of. Send me a note through Facebook Messenger, Instagram, LinkedIn. I'm easy to find and I'm easy to reach. I look forward to hearing from you. And if you'd like to support the podcast for less than a cup of coffee, and I'm not talking about the cost of a large latte at a fancy coffee shop, no, more like a McDonald's coffee, go into the description of this episode and scroll down to the anchor.fm link. It's right there. Just click it and you can see your options or log on to anchor.fm backslash John hyphen Kroll backslash support. Again, thank you for listening. I'm John Kroll. Talk to you soon. Thank you.